three announcements to make. I hate doing this right before the teaching and right after the Lord's Supper, but sometimes you just got to take care of business. So right after church today, if you're a department head, and if you're questioning whether you're a department head or not, just go ahead and meet anyway. But we, we really need to get a, a budget solidified for the church. And without it, it's right up there. So I don't need to say anything else. Okay, another slide you may have, and that is on the 18th, a church in, in Kaysville, Georgia, this organization called the Sago Lily Foundation. You say, what a strange name. Well, the Sago Lily was what the LDS church used really to, to sustain themselves through a very difficult time here in Utah. And so it's sort of commemorating that life-giving plant. And we as Christians, we as believers in the simple gospel, the biblical Jesus, we have a life-giving gift to give to our LDS friends. And the Sago Lily Foundation is dedicated to lovingly and graciously sharing the biblical Jesus with the people of the LDS faith that we love and want to see come to know the free gift of salvation. So they're doing a free seminar on the 18th. It starts at 9 o'clock at Kaysville Bible Church. So we won't have a men's Bible study that Sunday um, or that Saturday. One last announcement on the next, very next day. On Sunday the 19th, we as a church are going to have a potluck, something we have not done in a long time, and we just need that time of fellowship just to hang out together Get to know each other, and that'll be right after church. And so there is a, a sign-up sheet in the back of the church of something you want to bring for that potluck. So that's our announcements out of the way. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. And you you can just tell me if you're you, you want to go, and I can I'll do that. So just uh, if you're interested in going to that. Um, yes, sir. Yes.
want to be good stewards of what the Lord has blessed us with. So our passage this morning, um, let's go ahead and stand. It's only one verse. From the book of Hebrews. Chapter 12 and verse 14. Hebrews 12, 14. It's an imperative command to pursue or to follow after. The Greek word pursue is also translated to persecute, to give you an idea of how vehemently passionate we are to be about these things. So the idea is to chase after it as if you were wanting to apprehend something. Pursue peace with all men and holiness without which, and the word which is a relative pronoun, and it's in the singular, so it's referring back to holiness. The command is to pursue and to ensue and go after holiness as if you want to apprehend it. Pursue holiness, and here's the reason why, without which no man shall see the Lord. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You may be seated. Holiness is not something that we talk about a lot in contemporary Christianity. It's more about what God can do for me, what I can get from God, what does the church have to offer me. But the very core of who God is, is his holiness. And we come to a holy God when we come to the God of the Bible. This is his attribute. This is his chief characteristic. And so to understand our relationship between God, we need to understand his holiness. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train, his glory filled the temple. And he saw seraphim, and they were flying in the presence of this holy God. And because God was so holy, these six-winged creatures, two of their wings covered their feet. And when I read that, it brings me to the idea of Moses standing at the burning bush, and he was commanded to remove his shoes from off his feet. Because the land that you are standing on is holy ground. When Joshua met the captain of the armies of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, and I believe it was a theophany, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who was going to take them into the promised land, Joshua was again instructed to take off his shoes, for it was holy ground. And the seraph in honor of God's holiness, covered 
his feet with two of his wings. The other wings, he covered his face. We're told in Exodus that no man can see God and live. We're told in 1 Timothy that no one can see or has seen the holiness of God. And so this seraph flew. With two wings he flew. With two wings he covered his face. With two wings he covered his feet. And they cried out day and night, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. I can imagine if you and I had that vision, what response we might have. I think of Peter sitting in the boat and was instructed to throw his nets over on the other side. And he says, Lord, I have been fishing all night long and we have caught nothing. But he was growing in his faith, so he said, nevertheless, Lord, at your command, I'm going to do that. And when he did, they engulfed such a great compass, uh, uh, shoal of fish that the nets began to break. They put it in his boat, and they put it in their partner's boat, and the boats were sinking. At that moment, Peter understood that he was in the presence of something other than a normal human being. I think he was putting it together that this is not just the Messiah. This is God incarnate. Because he falls on his knees in the presence of Jesus, and he says, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. When you and I understand the holiness of God, it prepares us for a relationship with God. Until we really grasp his separateness from you and I, his absolute purity... We really have no conceivable idea what it means to be into a relationship with a being like that, that is who was and who is and who is to come. And Isaiah's response, I hope it would be like all of ours this morning. He said, woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And God, in his gracious mercy, said, Isaiah, I am going to cleanse you. I'm going to purge you. And so the seraph took tongs and a burning coal from the altar and said, See, I have touched your mouth. I have cleansed you. Your iniquity has been dealt with. And so this morning, I hope that we leave here understanding we have a holy, awesome God, and this God desires a relationship with us, and that we will desire his holiness to be imputed to us, and that we will do our part to actively pursue to go out and apprehend holiness because I want to see the Lord. One of the hymns that Tracy was going to play this 
morning, maybe it's still waiting, I don't know, it's maybe the closing hymn, it's take time to be holy, speak off with the Lord. And I've been meditating just on that old hymn all week long and how it's influenced just my time of prayer. It's influenced my free time that my brain has, not a lot of time. I either just sort of check out and do nothing in my head. Tracy will look at me and says, what are you thinking about? Nothing. <laughs> How do you do that? Well, I guess I'm just an empty-headed guy. <laughs> I'm able to do that. But during those times where I'm just sort of empty, I've been trying to think about God and who he is and my relationship with him and how to enter into a walk with a holy God. The ladies are doing a study in 1 John, and it says in 1 John that these things I have written to you that you may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And this is the message that you have heard from Him, that God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. God is so otherly than you and I. I don't know if that's a good word to use, but I can't really think of any other way of describing him. In him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. So in other words, the only way that I can commune with a God who is absolutely holy and pure is to walk in agreement with his holiness and with his word. And his blood needs to be continually cleansing us of all sin. Because if I say that I have no sin, I have deceived myself and his word is not in me. But if I confess my sin... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we want to walk with a holy God. I want to be in communion with him. I want to have fellowship with him. I want him to be sharing his light and truth with me so that I can have fellowship with him. So we are to pursue holiness. If you will go one book back, I'm sorry, I'm going the wrong direction. If you go one book forward to 1 Peter, we see a passage that really tells us how to accomplish this. How do I pursue holiness? Why do I pursue holiness? What is the result of pursuing holiness? So in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, it starts out with the word, therefore. And then we're given three commands. The basis of the command, we've got to go back and look at the earlier part of Peter to find out why we're commanded to gird up our minds. Why am I commanded to be sober? Why am I commanded to be serious? Why am I commanded to set my hope fully on the grace of God that is to be revealed at the coming of Jesus. Why do I do that? Therefore, because of those things, because of what he said earlier. And earlier he's talking about this great 
salvation. So if we look at verse 5, we'll see this great salvation. You and I have an inheritance that's incorruptible, it's undefiled, it fadeth not away, it's reserved in heaven for you, who, this is us, we are kept by the power of God. That's eternal security. If you are saved today, you are saved eternally because you are kept by the power of God. And how are we done? How are we kept? Is it through works? Is it through striving? No, it's through faith for our salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. We don't see salvation complete yet. Our sins are completely forgiven. But you and I are still in these sinful bodies. And we are waiting for that complete salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Go down to verse 9. Receiving the end of your faith. The end, teleos, the ultimate goal of your faith. The salvation of your souls. In verses 6 up to leading there, he says, we greatly rejoice in this salvation. Even though right now we are in heaviness through manifold trials, knowing that the trying of our faith is working in our lives. It's purging us. It's showing the genuineness of our faith, which is much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried by fire, that we might be found in praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, the end of our salvation, this end goal. If you go over to another passage, another verse in this, this text, in verse 12, He's talking about this great salvation. The prophets, they were predicting this great salvation. They were ministering to us the things that are now reported to you and I. It was not to themselves that they were preaching. These prophets were speaking about this incredible salvation. It's been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven. This salvation angels desire to look into. They want to know what is this all about. So Peter starts out by saying, Therefore, because this salvation is so marvelous, three things that you and I are commanded to do. Now, if you have an ESV, an English Standard Version Bible, it doesn't translate them as commands. The New King James, the King James translates them as commands. In your, so I, I want to just explain a little bit about the original language. The first two are actually participles. They're modifying one command. So in verse 13, our main command is to rest or to set your hope fully. Now, why does the King James and the New King James translate them as commands? Because participles, when they are put together with an imperative command in the original language, 
they take the force of the main verb. Let me give you an example. In the Great Commission, make disciples is the imperative. And then we have three participles, but they are also taken as if they were part of the command, but they are, in a sense, modifying the main command to make a disciple. Well, how do we make disciples? Well, that passage starts out by saying, Go ye therefore. That's actually a participle. And it's modifying the main verb, which is make a disciple. So how do I make a disciple? I've got to get going. Another participle, baptizing them in the name of the Father. So how do I make a disciple? I go and I baptize. One more participle, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded. Now, every one of them are also implied as a command. We are to go, and that's why the King James translates it, go ye therefore. I've heard a lot of pastors who know a little bit of Greek, and they're pretty dangerous when you know a little bit of Greek. And they'll say, well, that really means while you're going, as you're going. No, it means get moving. I think the King James translators knew exactly what it meant, and so... They're a lot smarter than we are. So let's take our translations and say, okay, that's what it means. It means get moving. Now, getting back to our text here, the first command, which is modifying the main command, is I am to set my hope fully. Now, how do I do that? Well, it starts by girding up the loins of your mind. You're thinking, what in the world does that mean? To gird up the loins of your mind? My mind has... Loins that I need to gird up? Well, this is a metaphor. In the ancient world, that would have been understood immediately. So let's just kind of go back to the ancient world and what people typically wore. They wore long, flowing robes. And if you were going to do some work, if you were going to take a journey, if you were going to compete athletically, you didn't want those loins to get in your way. You're going to trip on them. They're going to stumble. You're going to get caught and tangled up. So when Peter is telling us to gird up the loins of our mind, what he's really saying, and the original reader would have understood it perfectly, that I need to avoid anything that's going to hinder me. If I'm going to set my hope fully on the grace of God, then I have got to remove all the hindrances, any obstacle that gets in my way. I've got to be ready for work. I've got to be eager to engage in the competition. This means anything that's going to hinder me, I need to remove it. So pursuing holiness and actively going after it means I've got to get rid of the hindrances and I've got to have my mind ready to engage with God. The next word is our mind. I'm to gird up my mind. It's my conscious reality that I am living in union with God. This is the way we need to think. Our minds are a, a place where we've got to make a decision, obviously. 
What am I going to set my affections on? The mind that is set on the flesh cannot please God. So I've got to make a decision. I am going to set my mind on the things of God. I'm going to be putting my thoughts, my mental faculties are going to be engaged actively in seeking the presence of God. This is how holiness is accomplished. When your mind is girded up, you are ready to promote your relationship with Jesus Christ. You are seeking his name. That means his character, his attributes. You are seeking his will and you are seeking his kingdom. You are alert to temptations around you. And you are ready to flee because your mind has been girded up. And you recognize the things that hinder your relationship with God. And you remove them. Just as if you removed that girdle around your feet and you pick it up, and you tuck it inside your belt so you are off and ready to run. To be sober. Now, we understand what sober means. It means free of intoxication, right? But spiritually, sobriety has the idea of I am not under the seduction. You know how alcohol or any other drug It influences your thinking. It inhibits your thinking. Well, so when he says to be sober here, what he means really is I want your mind free from the seduction of the world that's going to suck you in. Take your walk with the Lord serious. Clear thinking. And it's often associated with the imminent return of Jesus. You want to get quickly sobered up spiritually, you tell yourself that Jesus could be coming at the very next instant. And that will cause you to be serious. I don't know what you might be doing. And you might be questioning it, or what you might be watching, or what you might be listening to, or what you're thinking I'm going to do. But all you have to do is shift that thought and say, Jesus might come right now. And that will give you some sobriety. Look at how Peter uses this in this verse. Be sober. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you when? At the appearing of Jesus. Go over to chapter 4 and verse 7. And we see the same word, sober. And here in the New King James, it's translated Serious. And why are we to be serious? Verse 7 of chapter 4 says, But the end of all things is at hand. We are approaching the end times. Everything, the end is at hand. Therefore, be sober. Therefore, be serious. And watchful in your prayers. So Peter often links sobriety, seriousness, with the imminent return of Jesus. So I'm to gird up the loins of my mind, my consciousness. I'm to remove all hindrances. I am to be serious about my Christian faith. And then the third command that Peter gives us is to set your hope. This is the main verb, 
and the previous two participles that are translated as commands really are supporting this one main verb, to set my hope completely. So what do I need to do? The first one is a past tense participle. The idea is having, because you have, and you are continually doing this, you're girding up your minds, because you are serious, now you can set your hope. And it's a present imperative. I'm to be constantly doing this. Set your hope. Start setting your hope. I, I, I misspoke there. It's actually a past tense imperative command. Now, why would some commands be in the past tense and why would some commands be in the present tense? A past tense command, the emphasis is to start doing something right now. A present tense command would be the idea of keep doing what you're doing. So Peter, what he's saying, he says, right now, I want you to have a paradigm shift. I want you to change your whole outlook. I want you to shift your mind. I want you to start rethinking things. I want you to live as if Jesus Christ could come at any moment. So gird your mind up, be serious, and set your hope. And now, what is the object of our hope? In this verse, the object of our hope is the grace, and what kind of grace? It's the grace that is to be brought to you when? At the revelation and the appearing of Jesus. So what he is saying is that one day you are going to see Jesus. Behold what manner of love God has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world hates us because it hated him. Therefore, everyone who has this hope in him, go back a little bit, it says, but when he appears, we will be like him. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. So I need to just shift the paradigm. This world is only a temporary home, and there is grace that I need to set my hope on. That hope is coming when Jesus Christ returns, and that is that my body will be shed from sinful inclinations. Hallelujah. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see when he takes me by the hand and he leads me into that promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. And that's what I'm to set my grace, my, my hope on, on that grace that is coming. So my mind is alert. I'm serious about my faith because my Savior is coming for you and I and grace one day will be complete. So now we see, we've been told why. Because this salvation is so marvelous. This salvation is so wonderful that God is giving us a hope that's eternal. He's given us an inheritance that's incorruptible. The prophets searched which manner of spirit of Christ that was in them, preaching of the salvation. And it was to us that they were preaching. 
We know of what to do because of the salvation. And now we just need to learn how. So the how has a positive and it has a negative and it has a warning. So let's start with what we ought to avoid. What do we avoid? So let's go to verse 14 and we see how. It tells us how to do this. The first one is something that we are to avoid. We are to pursue these things. We're to gird up our minds. We're to be serious. We're to set our hope fully as obedient children. So now we're told how to do it, as obedient children. Now there's a negative side to that, and there's a positive side. Obedient children know what they're not supposed to do, as well as what they are supposed to do. And so what is it that we are not to do as obedient children? It wasn't so much the things that my kids did that got them into trouble, as much as what they didn't do that got them into trouble. And here we're told what obedient children are not supposed to do. It's pretty simple, isn't it? So he says, as obedient children, this is what I want you to avoid. Let's read it together. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to your former lusts in your ignorance. So let's just kind of break that down. I'm not to conform ourselves. It's the middle voice. So this is something I am responsible to do. The word conform, what does it mean? If you have a mold and you have a liquid and you pour the liquid into the mold, it will conform to the shape of the mold, right? So my thoughts are not to conform to something. And he uses the word, our former lusts. So every one of us has a pattern, a habitual thing that we've just always done. And as obedient children, we're to identify what those habitual patterns are. Because it is so easy just to slip into autopilot. You get up in the morning, and you have a habit that you just do and you perform every morning. You open up your computer. You go to your phone. You go to your Facebook, whatever it is. We just have habitual things that we do. And the same thing in the things that displease God, that push us away that are hindrance, that causes us not to be serious about our faith, that prevents us from setting our hope on the grace that's coming to Christ. So I'm to identify those habitual patterns in my life and then not shape my thinking along with those things. So I'll just I'll give you a few examples here. Habits that form in us, patterns of behavior that we just ingrain, that we do time and time. 
we have selfish responses. That is just a habitual thing that we do. When somebody asks for our help, an alarm bell goes off. Well, what's this going to cost me? We have a tendency to move toward instant gratification. If my wife bakes a set of chocolate chip cookies, I don't even have to think about it. I instantly go out in the kitchen and I start picking them up. And next thing I know, I look at that cookie tray and there's about three left. These are just things that we do without thinking about it. And I'm pouring myself into a mold. And think about that now in the realm of sinful behavior or things that are displeasing to God, things that hinder our holiness. And so we need to reshape our worldview. We need to reshape, reshape our patterns of behavior. Things that are selfish responses. Wrong priorities. Don't conform yourself to your former pattern of life. We all have a set of priorities, don't we, that we live by. And we always seem to find time to do the things that are important to us. We prioritize them. And so if I am going to pursue holiness as an obedient child, I need to identify those things and to avoid them. Other things, overly concerned about what other people think of me. These are just the patterns that we pour our lives into so easily because we don't think about them. So holiness really starts with the mind, doesn't it? Now, what am I supposed to do? Let's look at the positive side. As obedient children, I'm not to pour my life into the old mold. I'm to develop new habits, new ways of thinking, new disciplines, in my life, but I'm to be holy. Verse 15, but, what a contrast. It's the strongest word for but in the New Testament. But, as he, so we, we, we see another as, don't we? Another way of living, another way of describing how we're supposed to live our lives. As children, things to avoid. Now we have another as in verse 15, as he who called you is holy. Now, that is an impossible task for every one of us. But yet the command is to be holy. But as he who called you is holy... You also, and you can underline this, just two words, be holy. Now, this is a present imperative. This is not something that we're to start, but it's something that we are to habitually do. We are to actively pursue intimacy with God. 
This involves walking in the light. Jesus is the light of the world. So if I'm going to be holy as God is holy, there's no other way to do it other than walking in truth. So if God is over here and he is holy, and I am over here and I am walking in darkness, what I need to do is I need to pick up his word and I need to align my life with his word, his light, his truth, his revelation. Blessed are the pure in heart. So there's a time of confession. The word pure there is not the word holy. It's the word katharizo, which means to be ceremonially clean. And in the New Testament, you and I are not required to be ceremonially clean. There's not any set of rituals that we have to go through. So in order for you and I to be clean, it is so, so simple because all of the ceremonies, all of the Sabbaths, all of the festivals, everything was pointing to Jesus. So if I want to see God, I bring my life under his blood, and I see God. So Peter says, as God is holy, as God is separate. So let's kind of define what it means to be holy, or what holiness means. Holiness really means something that is separated, or something that is devoted. Being holy, then, is walking separated from the world, according to God's revealed word that loves righteousness and abhors evil. The third thing that Peter tells us to do in order to achieve this, how to do it, I know what to do, I know why to do it. Now we're being explained how to do it. I do it by not conforming. I do it by striving after holiness. But the third element of this is found in verse 17. So we've got a conditional clause in verse 17. It starts out with the word if. And the word if is assuming it to be true. It's a condition of the mood of reality. This is something that is genuinely going on in your life. If you call on the Father. So he's not questioning whether these people really are believers. He's saying you truly are believers. And the if is sort of like a wake up, a snap out of it. Hey, if you call on the Father, you claim to be a Christian, you say, I am a follower of the one true God. I have placed my faith in Jesus. God is my Father. And since that is true, then we get to the end of this conditional sentence. But before we get to the end of the conditional sentence, Peter reminds us of who the Father is. 
So think about this with me. I am a genuine believer in Jesus. I have called on the Father. He is my Father, and I do call upon Him. Now, who is my Father? Who is this God? This God that you and I call our Father is impartial. And He is going to judge every one of us according to our works. You say, well, that sounds like a contradiction of the gospel. It's not. Let me explain why. God has judged our sin on the cross. And our sin has been paid in full on the cross. But the Bible also tells us that our works are going to be judged. And if I am calling on my Father, I am a believer in God, and my God and your God is a God who judges without any personal preference for any of us. None of us are going to go to God and say, well, I have something up on the other folks, and you're going to treat me with preferential treatment. <laughs> that doesn't work with God. He's going to judge, and he's not going to look at your bank account. He's not going to look at your personality. He is going to look at your works. And because you and I call on God, and because one day our whole life is going to be put on trial, so to speak, and our souls are eternally saved in Christ, but our works could be burned up. So if we're calling on God, and this is the kind of Father our God is, who's impartial, who's going to look at every one of our works, how are we to live our life? We're to see our life as nothing but a sojourn. All through Peter, he is writing to pilgrims. He is writing to people who are just passing through. They are called the elect of the diaspora. Those who've been scattered all over the Roman Empire. That's who he is writing to. He's writing to Jewish people who are outside of the Holy Land because they had to flee from intense persecution or they had to flee because of the Babylonian captivity or they had to flee because of the Assyrian captivity and they were sprinkled all over the Roman Empire. And God, according to his foreknowledge, chose them in Christ who is the precious and elect one and he has dispersed them everywhere. And God in his foreknowledge did this to spread the gospel, to saturate the Roman Empire with the good news of Jesus. And so these believers were going through severe persecution. They were suffering greatly for their faith. And if you read through 1 Peter, you find these clauses. Don't think it's strange. The fiery trial which is to try you, though some strange thing happened to you. He says, you were called to suffering. Jesus has left you an example of suffering that you are supposed to follow in his steps. And so if you're calling on God, 
and you're out there and you're one of the dispersed and you're being persecuted and you're suffering. He says, if you're suffering, don't let anybody suffer as a busybody. If you're a busybody, you deserve to suffer. Don't anybody or a meddler in anybody else's fear. But if you suffer as a Christian, rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward. So this is the context of this letter. This is the context of pursuing holiness because they will observe your conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil. For Christ also once suffered for us, the just for the unjust, that we might be coming like Christ. So that's the context of pursuing holiness. It's so that the world around you can see. And if you're calling on God, and you call him your heavenly father, and you say, Christ has saved me, then you are just on a pilgrimage here. And your suffering and your persecution don't mean anything. So how do we conduct our lives then? We conduct it in godly reverence and fear. And then we have a participle. Language is so cool. It's... It, and the Bible is such wonderful literature. It's written on such a high level. And we've got to take every single word and link them together. So if I'm calling on the Father, it's a conditional sentence. It's since I'm calling on the Father. And this Father judges everyone without respect of person. And he's going to be looking at your work. I'm to, to, to go through this earthly plane this temporary tent that I'm dwelling in, this, this old physical body. And this, by the way, this tent's getting pretty ragged. <laughs> Tracy and I have been using the same tents for a long time. I had one out in the backyard that my kids used, and, and I would, they, they would tear holes in it everywhere. So you know what I did? I got my the good old shoe goo. They don't sell shoe goo anymore, but man, pop, I, I fixed everything with shoe goo. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was better than um, J.B. Weld. But man, that tent, I took it to Ireland. And my boys, my, they're, they're crazy. I don't know how any of them reached puberty. I don't know how any of them reached adulthood. I don't know how I don't, I had my, my eyes blown out. I, I, they, they had this can with them on this camping trip. And the Irish kids, they don't, they don't take a lot of showers. I remember running with these kids. I mean, once a week they would they, they would bathe their clothes, and I, I swear I think they just jumped in the shower with their running togs on, and said, "Well, that's good enough." We had a kid from Ireland on our cross country team. I know I'm going a long story here. Paddy Kerrigan, and he he, he smelled so bad. Finally, we just took him, and we drug him into the shower, and we scrubbed him. Because you didn't want to run behind this kid. And he was fast, and so you didn't want to run in front of him either. But those kids in Ireland, they had this stuff called links, and that was their shower. I mean, I, I coached them. I remember they would come in the locker room, and none of them would go to the shower. They'd take this links, and they'd just spray it on themselves, and they would go out and think, okay, I got it covered. But my boys took all their bottle, their cans of links on this camping trip, and they put them in the fire. Yeah, ooh. And they're sitting there waiting what's going to happen. 
And they're all hiding behind trees and poking their heads out. And they said, Pat, that's what they called me, Pat, come out. We want you to see the fire. And I kid you not, I opened up that tent door, and it, they exploded. And I didn't get hit with a single shot. There, I believe in angels. <laughs> they were shielding me because I look at that tent behind me, and that thing was covered with holes. It looked like shrapnel had gone off. And I'm thinking, you numbskulls, you Egypt, as the Irish would say, you tick Egypt, you could have put me eyes out. <laughs> but that tent, we finally had to throw it away. And Peter is saying, that's all you guys are living in. You're just living in a tattered old tent. And your Savior is coming. And you are to place your hope on the grace of God that's going to appear because that tent is going to be done away with. And then he says, this is how you do it. Now, why do I focus on the things that are eternal? Why don't I focus on my old ragged tent? Because I know and you know that you were not redeemed, first of all, with corruptible things. Everything on this earth is subject to corruption, even silver and gold. It's going to corrupt. Second thing, I wasn't and you weren't redeemed with tradition. You're not saved because you went through some man-made ceremony because of the fathers behind you said, well, this is a good thing that you ought to do. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as a lamb without spot. So what does God want us to do? God wants us to think about how marvelous our salvation is. And because our salvation is so wonderful, I'm to remove every hindrance. I am to gird up the loins of my mind. What else am I supposed to do? I am supposed to be serious about my Christian walk. It's not haphazard. It doesn't happen by chance. It, because, it happens because you're serious about it. And then I'm to set my mind on this wonderful hope that's going to come to you and I when Jesus comes back. How do I do it? I do it as an obedient child. Obedient children don't conform to things that they used to behave like. You change your whole paradigm of life. And you set your mind to be holy. Because God is holy. And if we are calling on the Father who has no respect of persons and he's going to judge our work, then I pass this time in my life with godly reverence and respect and awe for who God is because you and I know what it cost our salvation. It cost Jesus everything and you and I got grace freely. So to walk with God is to live in accordance with His holy nature. Don't confuse this morning salvation with fellowship. Salvation is complete and finished in Christ. However, fellowship with God 
is incumbent on us to walk in the light as he is in the light. Then we have fellowship one with another. Salvation is fully paid to the sacrifice. Love for God is now your motive for living a holy life. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. This is done by yielding ourselves to him. I'm going to close with just two passages out of the book of Romans. I'm not going to have you turn there. I want you just to listen and to sink, let these verses sink into you because this really comes down to the application. How do I apply all of this? Romans chapter 6 and verse 13. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Verse 22, But now having been set free from sin and have becoming slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. So it's who we present ourselves to. That's our true master. Father, God, we don't talk about holiness a lot. It's something that we read about, something that the old saints seem to get hung up on. Today, if you talk about holiness and changing the patterns in your life and, re and making conscious decisions to be serious about your faith and to, to be alert to anything that's a hindrance. God, we, we have labeled that as legalism. And so, Father, I pray today that we would rethink who you are and our responsibility before you. God, the first verse that we read, God, may we meditate on that. Pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. God, we want to see you in our everyday lives. We want to commune with you. We want to walk with you. So God, it does take an effort to remove every hindrance to have our conscious thoughts serious about God and setting our hope that Jesus Christ is coming back. God, help us not to fashion ourselves. God, we, we've got into patterns of behavior that we don't even think about. We just go into autopilot. So, Lord, I pray today, God, that we'll think about what our patterns are, what our habits are. God, and I pray that we'll develop new patterns. God, I pray that we'll develop new habits. God, maybe a new habit of just taking a cup of water and saying, God, thank you for this drink. Maybe a new, a new pattern or when you get up in the morning, the first thing out of your mouth will be praise God for another day. This is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. God, may we develop a new pattern 
when we go down to eat our breakfast or to put a pot of coffee on, God, may our, our first thought is, I'm going to just open up a word and I'm going to, I'm going to meditate on one verse. Lord, God, help us to realize that this is just a temporary passing through. And God, if we call on you, if we call you our Father, then God, help us to, to pass through this life with this reverence. And God, remind us over and over again what salvation is. It costs you your precious blood. It's not perishable things. It's not traditions that saves us. It's the blood of Christ. God, you desire a holy people because you are holy. We pray this in Jesus' name.